Earlier this week, I was at a, a coffee shop, which is often what I do when I'm preaching. I spend a lot of time at coffee shops preparing a sermon. And at this particular coffee shop I was at, um, after about an hour or two of being there, this, uh, these two women came and they sat at the table next to me. It was an older woman and a younger woman. And they started having a conversation. And, and the younger woman particularly was just sharing her life story with this older woman. And it was hard not to overhear her. And <clears throat> as she was sharing, she was just talking about uh, just in her family history and as well as her, her husband's history, there was um, drug use, abuse, alcoholism, imprisonment. Uh, and it was just heartbreaking to hear the level of brokenness that this woman had experienced. And it just it really struck me and reminded me, um, just there in the flesh in front of me, that we live in a broken world. There's brokenness all around us. We experience brokenness in our bodies. We experience it in our workplaces. We experience in our relationships. And we even experience brokenness within the church. Why? Why does God allow such brokenness to happen all around us? Do you ever wrestle with that question? I, I do. There are times I just want all of this brokenness to be fixed. I just want it to go away. We need help. We need hope. And the passage before us this morning provides us with the hope that we need. Because Paul reminds us of who we are. He reminds us of what we should be doing. This is a broken world, but God is not done with it. He sent Jesus into this world to bring forgiveness, to bring healing, to bring restoration, and the crazy part is that Jesus is doing this through you. The church is God's temple. It should be a beacon of hope, should be a beacon of light to a broken and hurting world. And despite how things might appear around us, the, the world actually needs the church. Your family, your friends, your coworkers, they need you. But this is only true if we are following God's blueprint for his church. So how does God want his church built? We'll see the answer to that question in this passage from 1 Corinthians 3. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 3. I'll be reading for us verses 10 through 17. And I ask you to stand in honor of the word of God. <clears throat> According to the grace of God given to me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. Let each one take care how he builds upon it. For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Let us pray. Oh Lord, we do thank you for your word. We know that your word is without error, without fault, that it is absolutely true. 
And Father, we thank you that you remind us of who we are as your people, that we are your temple and that you dwell within us. Oh Lord, I pray that you might even use uh, this passage this morning to help us understand what that means. Let me pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. In chapter 3 of 1 Corinthians, Paul uses several different metaphors, and by the time we get to verse 10, he's using his third metaphor, and this is an architectural metaphor to describe how the church is to be built. Um, And this passage provides us with answers to three fundamental questions. The first question is, what are we building the church on? Or, Or what is our foundation? The second question is, what are we building the church with? Or what materials are we using to build with? And a third question is, what are we building the church for? Or what is the purpose of the church? And it is vitally important that we get these three questions right. Because if we build on the wrong foundation, the church will fall. If we build the church using the wrong materials, the church will fall. And if we build the church for the wrong purpose, the church will fall. And the world desperately needs healthy churches. So how does Paul answer this first question? What should we be building the church on? What is the right foundation for the church? We find that answered the question in verses 10 and 11. Paul talks about that as as the master builder, that he laid a foundation that someone else is building upon. Then he goes on and says, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So Paul, he he planted the church here in Corinth, uh, and he compares himself to a skilled master builder. Now, he's not being arrogant when he says this. A skilled master builder in that time and age was actually a particular position. It is like the, the head contractor, chief contractor today. They were the ones that were responsible to make sure that the, the building project was built correctly, that it was following the blueprints, um, that it was being built according to the master's plans. And so that's what Paul's role was in planting the church at Corinth. He was put in charge by God to lay the right foundation for that church. We get a hint of this even in verse 10, where he says that he's doing this according to the grace of God given to him. You see, Paul recognized that the only reason why he was the skilled master builder is because God had called him to that position, and God was one who was equipping him to fulfill his role. Paul was called and equipped to plant churches. He was called to plant the right foundation for each church and then move on to a new location and do it all over again at a new, in a new city. He was not called to build upon that foundation. God would raise up others. In this case, in Corinth, he raised up Apollos, for example, to build upon the foundation that Paul laid. And so one of the arguments that Paul is making here is that both of those roles are important and needed. The Corinthians should not favor one over the other, but that's what they were doing. That's why there was one of the reasons why there was such division within that church is because they were favoring Apollos over Paul, or they were favoring Paul over Apollos, saying that one was more important than the other. But Paul is reminding them that both were needed. Without Paul laying the foundation, there would be no church. And without men like Apollos building on that foundation, there would be no church. Therefore, Paul's work was vitally important. He was called by God to lay the foundation of that church. And so what was that foundation? What is the foundation of the church? The foundation is Jesus Christ. This is the only foundation for the church No other foundation will stand. No other foundation will last. 
One of the things that I really enjoy doing as a dad, and, and both my boys love this, I, I love building various towers. <clears throat> you know, and, and the reason, whenever I start to build a tower, my boys' eyes light up. And why is that? It's not because they admire the tower, it's because they want to knock it down. <clears throat> and so sometimes, you know, I'll use blocks and I'll build a tower. Sometimes I may use Legos. Sometimes I'll use Cheerios at breakfast and build little towers. Uh, and Sam's favorite thing, because my, my youngest loves cars, I'll use matchbox cars, and I'll make little car towers. And the bigger the tower g gets, the, the more excited they get. And if you happen to make the tower taller than them, that's the best yet. Because the bigger the tower, the greater the crash. Well, you know what? I can build much bigger towers with blocks than I can with matchbox cars. Why, why is that? Matchbox cars do not make a good foundation. They've got wheels. They're not level. I can only build a tower about this tall with cars before they either fall on their own or Sam knocks them over. The foundation matters. Anything you build, the foundation matters. We all know that this is true. This is why we build houses on rock and we don't build them on sand. The foundation is the most important part of the building. You have to get that right. And there's only one foundation for the church, and that is Jesus the person, the work, and the word of Jesus is the only foundation that will withstand any and all trials and troubles and difficulties that come our way. It is the only foundation that will last for all of eternity. Nothing else compares. And Paul knew this. He knew that he was called to not just lay any foundation, but he knew he was called to lay the foundation of Jesus Christ in each and every church that he planted. Jesus had to be their foundation. And I think most of us probably know this. We both, most of us recognize the fact that Jesus needs to be the foundation of the church. But I think we need to be reminded of this because I think there are times we are tempted to lose sight of that or to forget that or to think that Jesus actually is not enough. And we can be tempted to believe that the church needs a new foundation or maybe even an additional foundation in order to stay relevant and effective in what we're called to do. And unfortunately, there are churches planted all the time that don't even have the right foundation to begin with. What are some of those wrong foundations that you might find? It, it may be the law, like, you know, the, the, we're, we're founded on a particular moral code, and what really matters most is that everybody conforms to that moral code. It may be success, that that's the thing we care the most about, is that we are the biggest and the brightest and the best church around. It may be cultural relevance, that what matters most is that we truly understand and we embrace our culture so that they think that we are good friends and neighbors and that we love them well. There are a lot of other things that we could list here. And although there are aspects of all of those things that are important and that we should find in the church, none of those things should be a foundation. Jesus alone is sufficient. Jesus and his gospel has to be the foundation of the church because nothing else will do and nothing else compares. And that is not only true for the church, but it is true for you as well as, as an individual believer. What is the foundation of your life? What are you building your life on? Are you building your life primarily on a particular set of moral values? Are you building your life on a particular set of political views? Are you building your life upon the approval of others? Are you building your life upon the pursuit of happiness and comfort and ease? What are you building your life on? If you are not building your life on the person, work, and word of Jesus, then your life is not on solid ground. 
We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is full of pain and hardship and struggle. We live in a world that is full of disappointment and uncertainty. And this creates a burden that you cannot carry. Do you ever feel like the world is just a weight upon your shoulders that is about to crush you? That you just cannot hold it, on, hold it up any longer for another day? Maybe that's how you feel this morning. You can't carry that burden. You were not created to carry the weight of the world upon your shoulders. Only Jesus can carry that weight. He alone is able to take our burdens. That's why he calls us, all who are weak and weary, to come to him that we might find rest. For his yoke is light and his burden, or his yoke is easy and his burden is light. So if your world feels like it is this crumbling around you, if you feel like you cannot stand for yet another day, that you cannot carry the burdens that are in your life, then don't. Turn to Jesus. He is the only foundation that will stand the test of time. He is the only foundation that will endure all trials and difficulties that come your way. Anything else that you try to base your life on will fail. The classic hymn reminds us, On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking stand. So are you building your life upon the solid rock? Or are you building it upon sinking sand? What is the foundation of your life? If it is not Jesus, turn to him today. Jesus is the only sure foundation for us, and he's the only sure foundation for the church. We need to seek to build the church upon him and him alone. Now, not all of us are called to be church planners like Paul. I do pray that he would continue to raise up people to plant churches. We need healthy churches throughout this world. But not all of us are called to do that. But all of us are called to build upon the foundation of the church. So how do we do that well? Well, that's where Paul turns his attention next. We see this beginning in verse 12 when he says, If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw... So, so when Paul starts off by saying, if anyone builds on the foundation, he's not suggesting that this is something only for a few individuals. He's actually not taking this uh, a narrow view. He takes a wide view because he knows that everybody is a builder. Whether, whether you realize it or not, you are building something. You are building. The two questions you need to answer, though, is what are you building on? Are you building on the right foundation? Are you building upon Jesus? Because not everybody does. The other question that you need to answer is, what are you building with? We can be building on the right foundation, but we can be building with the wrong materials. We can be building in the wrong way. So Paul lists six building materials here, gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, and straw. These are all materials that would have been used in Paul's age, day and age. The, the, the first three kind of represent precious quality materials. The, the last three represents cheaper materials. But more significantly, what matters in this picture that he's drawing here is that only some of those materials will stand the test of fire. Only the first three will last, and that's where he goes next in verse 13. He says, each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. Only the first three will t- survive this testing. The rest will be burned up, and there will be nothing that remains. So the fire reveals the quality of the work that we have done. If your work survives the fire, then you will be rewarded. If your work does not survive the fire, then you will suffer loss. We see this in verses 14 and 15. So what does all of this mean? 
But we are all building something. If you belong to Jesus, then he expects you to be building his church. He expects you to be seeking to advance his kingdom. That is the work that you are called to do. You are called to build the church upon the right foundation and in the right way. We can do this well or we can do this poorly. Ignoring or neglecting this call is a way of of building with these poor materials. Because building is not optional. So we need to ask ourselves regularly, how am I building the church? How, what am I doing to seek to advance the kingdom of God? Because this is what every one of you is called to be doing. Now, we're not going to all do this in the same way because God has given us different strengths and different weaknesses. He's given us different gifts and different opportunities. He's called us to different things. But the question is, is how are you using your strengths, how are you using your gifts, how are you using your talents to build upon the foundation of Jesus? And there's a warning given to us in this passage. Each and every one of us is going to be judged for what we build. Everything we do and everything that we fail to do will be evaluated by Jesus when he returns. That is what Paul means when he says that each one's work will be manifest for the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. This is talking about Jesus' second coming. When he returns in judgment, when he returns, he's going to return with fire. It's a reference to his coming judgment, his coming uh, revealing of all things. And part of his judgment is that he's going to judge our lives. He's going to judge how well have you built upon the foundation of Jesus. I'll be honest, that terrifies me. The thought that everything I've done and all the things that I've failed to do will one day be before Jesus. But that's true. Everything you do And everything that you fail to do will come before his judgment seat. Let that sink in for a moment. Now this is meant to motivate us, to challenge us, to live well and to build well. Jesus' second coming when he returns is a day to be feared, at least in one sense. But as Christians, it's not a day for us to ultimately fear. Why? Because your salvation is secure. Paul makes this clear as well. He says, if, anyone, if anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by our works. Jesus has already been judged in our place. So if you belong to him, your salvation will never, ever, ever be in jeopardy. We need to understand that. That should give us great hope and encouragement. But that does not mean that you are free to live your life however you choose to. Because Jesus has saved you, you belong to him, and he expects you to live your life in a certain way. He expects you to live your life in a way that brings him glory. And that's really the best way to understand what Paul is talking about here. That the materials that we are expected to use to build his church are those materials that reflect the character and glory of our foundation. They reflect the character and glory of Jesus. These are the materials that will... Uh, will last through this testing of fire. So what exactly does this look like? Practically, what does this look like? Well, building with bad materials in the, uh, would include things like just neglecting or um, abandoning your, your duty to build. It would include things like trying to build the church to build things more in your image. You care more about your image and your reputation than you do about the image and reputation of Jesus. It includes things like just simple laziness. 
and selfishness and pride. Includes compromising the gospel just to keep up with the times and, and so that you're more acceptable to your neighbors. Anything that we do that does not reflect the character of Jesus, that does not seek to honor him, does, that does not seek to promote his glory, is like building with wood, hay, and straw. And it will not last. But what does it look like to build with good materials? Well, there are some obvious things that we can do. Certainly proclaiming the gospel to people that don't know Jesus, that's one of the ways we build with good materials. Um, Serving as a missionary, serving faithfully in a ministry of the church, those are things that we can do. But there are a lot of other things that we can do. So, for example, whenever you, you bring somebody a meal who's in need, you are building with gold, silver, and precious gems. If you're a student and you stand up for somebody, even though it might hurt your reputation with your friends, you are building with gold, silver, and precious gems. If you are having to care for a loved one in their moment of need and it just takes a ton of sacrifice and energy, you are building with gold, silver, and precious gems. If you have a loved one that doesn't know the Lord and you pray day after day after day after day for their salvation, you are building with gold, silver, and precious gems. There are many other things that we could list here. There are many ways that we can be building the kingdom of God, that we can be building the church, that very few people ever see. There are things that we do that don't ever get recognized, but God sees it. He sees you building with gold, silver, and precious gems even when no one else does. And you will be rewarded for that. And that brings us to one of the more confusing aspects of when we talk about what is heaven going to be like, what's it going to be like when we're with Jesus. One of the most confusing aspects of this is this idea of this rewards that we hear about in Scripture. And we see it in lots of different places, including this passage here. There's this talk about you're going to be rewarded for how well and how faithfully you live out your life. But what does that mean exactly? Well, first, once again, this is not about our salvation. Our salvation is based solely upon Jesus. He has secured our salvation for us. All who belong to Jesus will be in heaven with him, and that is really what ultimately matters. We never want to lose sight of that. Every Christian, every true Christian will be in heaven, but not every Christian will have the same reward in heaven. The best explanation I've ever heard on this comes from Jonathan Edwards. This is what he wrote. He said, the saints, Christians, are like so many vessels of different sizes cast into a sea of happiness. Where every vessel is full, this is eternal life for a man forever to have his capacity filled. But after all, tis left to God's sovereign pleasure. Tis his prerogative to determine the largeness of the vessel. In other words, all of us who follow Jesus will be in heaven with him for all eternity. All of us will be completely filled. We will be satisfied beyond measure. We will have utter joy and happiness. There will be nothing in us that lacks or wants or desires anything else. However, not all of us will be filled in the same amount. Because all of us will have different capacities based upon how faithfully we lived our lives for Jesus. Another way to think about this is just, if you go with me for a minute, just spiritually speaking, when you get to heaven, some of you might be teaspoons. Some of you might be cups. And a rare few of you might be gallons. The point is, all of us will be overflowing with joy. And there will be no envy or jealousy about this because none of us will have any more room to hold anything else. We'll be satisfied. We'll be complete. We'll be fulfilled. 
we'll be fully happy, even though we'll have different levels of capacity. This is really meant to encourage you and to challenge you to live faithfully for the Lord, to use your gifts and your talents to honor Him and to promote His glory, to seek that everything you do to build His kingdom and His church honors Jesus and reflects Him. Because you are called to build the right way. You're called to use your talent, your time, and even your money to honor the Lord and to bring Him glory. And really, there should be no part of the church that does not reflect its foundation. There should be no part of the church where you do not see the glory of Jesus. Finally, you are to build for the right purpose. And we see this beginning in verse 16 where Paul asks this rhetorical question, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? The church is God's temple. We are God's temple. Later in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul talks about us as individual Christians. Each individual Christian is also the temple of the Lord, that the Holy Spirit dwells in each one of you individually. But here in chapter 3, Paul is talking about this using the plural you. He's talking about this collectively, that together, all of us together, gathered as God's people, that we are the temple of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells with us. The Holy Spirit dwells with us not only individually, but also corporately. And Paul is not talking, when he talks about the church, he's not talking about the physical building. There's nothing holy or special about this physical building. The church is the gathering of God's people. So when we gather together for worship, we are the temple of God. Now there are a lot of implications to this, but I just want to focus on two this morning. And the first is this. The temple is where God dwells with his people. Consider that for a moment. When we gather as God's people, God dwells with us. Now, yes, it's true. God is everywhere. He is always with you. But when we gather as the church, God dwells with us in a special and profound way. We are his temple. He meets with us here when we gather. This is a holy place, which means it's also a place that should be distinct from the world. It's interesting if you look in the Old Testament, when the Old Testament temple, physical temple was built, it was built on a hill in Jerusalem. And part of the reason for that is it was meant to be a beacon of light and of hope that would attract all nations, invite all nations to come before the presence of God to where they would experience joy and peace and hope and fulfillment. And that is what we as the church is called to be today. We are the temple of God. We are to be a beacon of hope. We are to be a beacon of light. Unfortunately, the church does not always look this way, does it? Sometimes the church is full of abuse, and gossip, slander, fighting, and division. And we need to repent when that happens. We need to seek to forgive one another. We forgive not because a person's worthy of it. We forgive because Jesus has forgiven us. We need to be a place where we seek reconciliation. And restoration. The part of the story I didn't tell you about that, those two women that were meeting in the coffee shop and just sharing her story of just utter brokenness is later on then she shared how she came to know Jesus and how through Jesus she found healing and restoration and hope and it had just completely transformed her life. And then she talked about not only that but then how she brought, was brought into a church and how the church walked alongside of her and help bring uh, just joy that she never had experienced before. 
And as I was sitting there listening, I was thinking, like, that'll preach. So I'm using it. It preaches. But that is what the church is supposed to be. The church is supposed to be the place where people come to find Jesus and to find healing and forgiveness and hope, to walk alongside each other and through pain and difficulties and trials and hardships. The church is supposed to be a place where people can come and meet with God. We are God's temple. We are a place where God meets with us. And therefore, we need to reflect His glory. We need to be a place of healing and of restoration and of reconciliation. Secondly, the temple was the place where God's people would go to worship Him and to to make their sacrifices to Him. Now, once again, we can worship God anywhere. We can make sacrifices to Him anywhere. However, the church is the place that was ordained to be the, the primary place for us to come to worship. We gather here as God's people, as God's temple, to worship Him and to make sacrifices to Him. The gathering of God's people is special and unique. It's a, there's a special manifestation when we gather as His people of His presence and of His grace that cannot be found anywhere else. This is why in, in the book of Hebrews, in chapter 13, it tells us not to neglect to meet together. The church is God's temple. Do you view the church that way? Does the gathering of God's people have priority in your life? I think this is one of the ways the pandemic has really hurt the church over the last year and a half, is that we were unable to meet together for so long, and even now that we're meeting together, there are many that have chosen to to not come. There are some that can't come because of health reasons, and, and I'm glad that we are able to do live stream and other things, but there are others that have just chosen not to come. Because it's just easier and comfortable to be at home. But when you do that, you're missing out on what God has called you to do. You're missing out on what is best. You're missing out on an opportunity to meet with God in a special way. You're missing out on an opportunity to worship Him and to serve Him and to sacrifice for Him in a special and unique way. You're missing out on being part of God's temple. And that brings me to another point. The church is not about you. Church should not be about getting what you want. It is not your temple. It is God's temple. It is not about your preferences, about your likes, about your taste. Church is about God and His glory. Well, unfortunately, I think we are too often tempted to approach church, church as a consumer rather than coming to church as needy saints who desperately want to be in the presence of God. We come to church, we should come to church not to be comfortable. We should come with fear and trembling because we're coming before the presence of God, desperately longing to be comforted by the gospel. We should come to church to meet with God first and foremost, not simply to see our friends. And we should come to church not to be served but we should come willing to sacrifice our own rights and desires to serve God and to serve each other. Ultimately, we come to worship and to praise God because we are God's temple. The church is built upon Jesus. It is built by Jesus through us. It is built according to His character and His glory. And it is being built into the temple of God. And God is jealous for His church. We see this in verse 17. If anyone destroys God's temple... God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. 
Jesus reminds us in the gospel that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. The true church is secure in his hands. There's nothing for us to fear. Yet we still have enemies all around us, enemies that are seeking to destroy the church. And there can be different earthly manifestations of the church that are destroyed. Sometimes that happens through neglect. Sometimes it happens through false doctrine coming into the church. It can happen through a scandal. Um, There are lots of ways that a local manifestation can be destroyed of the church. But anyone who seeks to destroy the church needs to be warned. God does not take this lightly. God will remember and he will bring judgment. Those that destroy the church will be destroyed. And this should give us great hope because it reminds us God is victorious. That he will judge all of his enemies and that the church will be victorious through Jesus. That Jesus will prevail. So we see here the church is holy. It is secure. It's the primary place where God meets with his people. It's the primary place for us as God's people to worship him. So I ask you this morning, do you love the church? Warts and all, do you love the church? Do you long to gather as God's people? Because you are God's temple. Jesus died to make that possible. That was the the greatest sacrifice ever seen. And he gave his life so that we could be God's temple. We could gather as God's people. Jesus is your foundation. He is using you to build his church to reflect his glory to a world that desperately needs him. Because yes, we do live in a fallen world. We live in a world that has little to no hope. We live in a world that desperately needs Jesus. And he is found primarily in his church. So are we building the church? Are we building tabernacle according to his design and his purpose? When people look at this church, do they see Jesus or do they see something else? Let us reflect his glory. Let us live as the temple of God for that is exactly who you are. Let us pray.